Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the key trends, drivers and movements in agricultural markets. My name is Olivia Agar. Thanks again for listening in today. And while ag markets are the focus for 99% of our podcasts, we are deviating a little bit today because we've been hanging out to talk about the findings of a very comprehensive study that's recently been completed on the topic of succession planning. And the researcher behind that study joins us today, and I'm not sure that there are many others that would be as qualified to study the topic as Mike Stevens, who has about 40 years of work under his belt as a consultant and director of Meridian Agriculture, advising producers on family farm succession planning. So we're very excited to have his expertise here today. But as you'll hear shortly, when we're talking about family farm succession planning, it isn't just an add-on that needs to be worked through when the kids are getting older, but the choice in how the farm is passed on in whatever form really should be completely ingrained into the business plan and define the pathway for how the farm business is managed. So we have a lot to unpack today and thank you so much to Mike for coming on and sharing his insights. And after a thank you to this week's sponsor, I'll hand over to Robert Herman and Mike Stevens. Today's podcast is brought to you by the team at Western Union. If you're looking to partner with an agribusiness specialist to optimise your cross-border and foreign exchange risk management, the team at Western Union Business will equip you with the solutions you need to send, receive and manage your international payments. Download their app from your favourite app store or head to their website for more info. Well, thanks very much for the introduction. And, and yes, we have Mike Stevens today. Um, we're a, I'm a fan of Mike's. I'm a fan of yours, Mike. And, uh, but particularly because of your, your, your long-term efforts to help farming and especially farming families understand how to plan for succession planning. And we need to congratulate you also. You're, uh, it's now Dr. Mike Stevens, and, and achieving a PhD is a fantastic effort and certainly in this area is going to be helpful for f- farmers and, and, the, and the future generations. But I'm interested that in some of the statistics that, that I read in your PhD, one of the key things that comes up is that there aren't many farms that, that, that are in a good position to deal with succession planning. Can you just explain what you know, what the percentage of those farmers are, but also what are the things that define someone who's in a good situation to talk about and deal with um, succession planning? Uh, Thanks, Rob. Look, firstly, let me just respond. Um, If you're a fan, you probably need to get out more and get get more exposed (laughs) to other ideas from other people. Uh, In in terms of the uh, PhD, the, the study wasn't just about succession planning. It, it was about what businesses did to position themselves to be able to stay in the hands of the family that owned them now or in one branch of that family. So although um, we've spent a lot of time thinking about how people should go about a succession plan, the, the, the PhD was as much about how to build the business to make succession planning possible. The statistics that you talk about are are really quite uh, frightening uh, from the point of view of the future of the industry. When I started to do my study, there were 53,000 broadacre farm businesses nationally. There's now near as damn it to 50,000. By broadacre, that's sheep cattle crop. So anything which, uh, not, not including dairy. 
so 50,000 sheep, cattle and crop farms in Australia. Of those, half of them, even in this really good year of 1819, the last lot of figures, had a gross farm income of $400,000 or less. So you've got a, the, a large uh, percentage of farms where, they, where they're nice little businesses as long as they've got enough farm in, uh, uh, sufficient off-farm income for people to live, but they're, you know, they're not going to be able to withstand the vagaries of market and climate. Then you've got about a quarter which are in a situation that if they really start to build the business now, uh, they'll be able to build the business to make succession possible without off-farm income. And then you've got a quarter, 12 and a half, maybe 14,000 of those 50,000 farms which have got the scale to make succession possible. But scale only. The whole lot of other things they need as well. Now, that's a really good lead into to this point because you've identified there are three, um, I guess, key objectives in a family farm and, and I'll broadly, and I'll get you to elaborate them, but one is to hand on a viable business. So that there's a whole lot in that in terms of management and scale and, and, and how it's funded and everything. But also it needs to be able to fund the retiring generation. They need to be looked after. And then, of course, you've got this other issue that, that really works, plays on, on family farms is how do we deal with the family that isn't going to continue on the farm? Because it's not everyone's going to be able to continue on the farm. So they're the three broad points you've made. Can you just flesh those out a little bit more, Mike? Yeah, certainly, uh, Robert. So, so the, the three main aims had been identified in, in previous research. The three main aims are to hand on a viable business, uh, to have sufficient funds for retirement, even though I, as the farmer, might not want to retire, and to ensure that the individual self-interest of other family members is catered for. Now, in order to get those uh, three main aims achieved, there needs to be a fair bit of give and take and a fair bit of compromise. So if we, if we get to the first one, the handing on a viable business, if we, if we go back to those figures that I talked about before, uh, the majority of, of businesses are not viable now. Um, so we need to uh, be realistic about that. In terms of the funds for retirement, it, it, it falls into the same sort of category of whether the business is, is viable. And, and viable uh, is, a, is, a, is a very uh, subjective term. So I prefer us to think in terms of uh, will the business, with or without off-farm income, be able to withstand the vagaries of climate and market in Australia? That's 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 really the question. And if it if it needs off-farm income, how realistic is that to balance um, the off-farm income with the needs of the of the farm and the family? So when you when you move to uh, the third thing, well, how do you do? How do you keep the uh, farm so that it's an economic unit and meet the needs of all of the family. And, and one way to think about this is there are two uh, positions, if you like, two stakes we can put in the ground at either end of the discussion. One stake says uh, the farm, 
or the farmer or the farmers in the family get the percentage of the family assets that they need to have a viable farm and the other family members get what's left over. And the stake in the ground at the other end of the discussion says uh, we've got 100 uh, units of asset, whatever they are, millions, thousands, tens of thousands, doesn't matter, we've got 100, and we've got four kids, four and 100 is 25, so we divide it up equally. Now, they're the, they're the two extremes. In some families, in order to meet the individual self-interest of all family members, uh, that will not be met unless the assets are divided by four. In other families, it works for uh, people accept that farms are capital-intensive businesses and that in order to keep the farm in the family, uh, the farmer is going to have to get the lion's share of the assets. And he or she the, or, or they, uh, the farmer in, in the family, uh, might need to buy out their siblings, uh, might need to provide for their parents in old age, um, but they will get more. And it's, it's finding that middle ground that in most cases makes succession a financial possibility. It's still got to have other, other things in mind other than the finance. Well, let's go to the other things because you're right. I mean, it's, it's quite what you've outlined there is quite logical and can be quite clear cut. But then when you add in the people component, and we know this in a lot of things, whether talking about a lot of aspects of business, when you add in the people component, it becomes more difficult. Now, there are a couple of things that you've identified in your thesis that, that's, that says these are some key things that need to happen in order for the people to accept, I guess, the, the financial outcome. Do you want to just go through those a bit? Yeah, I mean, if you, if, if you start to think about, so what are the likely blocks to making it happen? So the, so, so the first block is that the older generation doesn't want to hand over. And the older generation doesn't want to hand over, perhaps because the whole identity of the, whole, of the older generation is, I am a farmer, Robert Herman Farmer. Take the farming away from me and I've got nothing left. I identify myself as being a farmer. I don't play bowls. I don't play golf. I don't want to. Uh, I enjoy being a farmer. That's what I am. In order to be a farmer, I've got to go on owning the farm. So that's a block. Another block is the dreaded daughter-in-law um, uh, or son-in-law, the dreaded in-law, who's going to come in and steal everything from us. Uh, there are a whole range of, of techniques which can be used to ensure that protection is given to the family. And in my view, Robert, dreaded in-laws are created by the family. They, they don't start off being dreaded people. They, they start off being bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wanting to help. But because this, this, this wall of distrust, they end up getting on the outer. And then the, um, uh, the third thing is that I'm going to have to me, as the, as the member of the older generation in charge, or we, husband and wife, are going to have to make this call, sorry, farmer, 
uh, it's going to be even, so your farm's going to be a bit smaller than you wanted, or sorry, other kids, farmer comes first, so you get what's left over. So you put those three things together, it is very, it's much easier for the senior generation to sit on their hands and do nothing. And I had a conversation with a farmer recently about all of this, and he said, but but look, if I just do it all by my will, then they can have the arguments on when I'm gone. I'm not part of the argument. I don't have to worry about it. And while that's true, the argument is likely to be longer, bitter, more expensive if the argument is held when the guiding hand of the parents is no longer there. So yeah, if, the, if the parents can bite the bullet and start to do something about it, it's likely to be less painful. So you've outlined that pretty well. Oh, sorry, there is, I should say there's one other thing. There has to be a member of the next generation ready to step up. And, and often the next generation was ready to step up, but is no longer ready to step up, step up because of a very unsatisfactory long-term employment relationship where the, where the son or daughter has come home and worked on the farm and has spent all the all the time fighting with the old man, um, and and it's easier to go and do something else. So not only have you, have you got to have the old older generation ready to hand over, you've got the, got to have the next generation ready to step up. So those you've just outlined that pretty well, but and it sounds logical, but knowing families, it doesn't end up logical. So what happens when you know Dad says, so you know. Son and daughter comes home from ag college and says, right, I'm ready to take over. And dad says, well, you do your time. Or um, dad says, look, I want you to want someone to come and take over the farm. And, and son or daughter says, well, hang on, I'm still got my travelling to do or whatever. What happens when those, those personal things can't be resolved? What do you find in your server, in your study, that farm think, business do in that situation? Yeah, I think, I think the first thing that people have got to accept between the generations is that there's three ways of doing things. There's your way of doing it, and there's my way of doing it, and there's our way of doing it. And what families need to do is to work through your way, my way, our way, and develop the our way. And that means some compromise. And younger generations coming into a family business now uh, will almost certainly claim more time for family, more time for recreation, uh, more time for more time off farm than the previous generation did. And the generation before that, you know, a similar sort of step. So unless families uh, have got the communication tools and the respect for each other as individuals to sit down and accept that uh, it needs to be done a a way which everything needs to be done with some some um, compromise, um, and and that I, by that I don't mean uh, compromise about um, the standard of of shearing or the animal health program or the you know there are there are things uh, which need to be there's only one way of doing them that's properly but there are things like the hours of work time off. It needs to be a method of resolving those disputes. 
So in your study, you you had a lot of case studies, and it was uh, and I can't imagine how much work went into gathering all that together, Mike. It was it was it's quite extensive. That is, yeah. Let's look for some positives. So you found some farms in those case studies, and and I think it was somewhere about I think you say of the 116 case studies, including some really in depth ones, 30 only will continue past the third generation of those. What were the characteristics of those 30? What are the positives that came out of that, you know, that might be something that um, people thinking about this can consider? Yeah. So, Rob, the the 160, we need to step back one. We did a survey first, which through accountants, lawyers, rural financial counsellors, bankers and farm management consultants allowed us to look through a window at over 6,000 of the 50,000 farm businesses. So it's a pretty big survey. Statistically, it's not sound. Uh, you know how statistics work from your work with Mercado um, because it's a, it's a skewed survey. But nevertheless, it's a pretty big survey. So that gave us the opportunity to frame the questions for the case study. It also told us that that the vast majority of, of uh, farm businesses don't have a succession plan and are unlikely to develop one. What we found, so, so 16 of the case studies were, eight were of businesses that would continue and eight were of businesses that either aren't continuing or changed dramatically. Um, and they're sort of in pairs from below about $3 million at the bottom up to between 350 and 400 million at the top. So there's a there's a, a business in 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 ranges up during the, the, those various dollar segment segments, contrasting what happened in each of the businesses. Uh, and it's worth noting now, but between those and the historical records, every state um, is uh, there are businesses there from every state, and. Uh, there's a there's a mixture of sheep businesses, cattle businesses, and crop, and and mixed. What we found from the thirty of the hundred and sixteen was that a hundred of the ones that are continuing, one hundred percent of those businesses, thirty out of the thirty, gave control to the younger generation at a young age, and a young age was by thirty five. 93% of those businesses had set clear succession goals and they were part of the long-term strategic planning goals of the business, which you mentioned in the introduction. This is not just about succession. 88% uh, built the business through a staged approach and typically in a livestock business, build up the numbers till we haven't got room to run them, lease land in order to run the extra numbers. The, looking at the lease proposition, money in, money out, sometimes it looks a bit dubious, but there's two advantages there. We sold a lot. Of, we didn't sell a whole lot of stock, so we saved some money on tax. Um, and then when we go to buy more land, we've already got the stock. And it goes up and down a bit, but rule of thumb in a farm business, livestock are about a third of the, of the total value. So... Well, at the moment with land values, it's it's probably not as much as that, but it gives you a great leg in if you've already got the livestock. So 80, uh, 88% did that. 73% of them had a, a history of, of good succession. So history does matter. If you've got a history of bad succession, you can't do anything about it, but, but accept it. And then 
another really uh, noticeable one, 68%, had a situation where siblings worked together to grow the business to break it up. And what I mean by that is that, that when the older generation said, okay, we're ready to talk about succession, the siblings said, uh, rather than cutting the farm up, hand it over to us and we'll work together to use the chunk of capital together to build it so that when our kids are in their young 20s, we can break it up then. And that has been a really successful strategy for, for a lot of business. And then others uh, share farmed and worked a fair bit of off-farm income in there and some traded land and a few of them got injections of family capital. But those things I've mentioned are the big ticket items that allowed successful succession. Now, you mentioned earlier at the beginning that it's not all about succession planning. And, and what I just wanted to ask your thoughts on now, Mike, uh, we've had a you know, the world's had a really turbulent time. We don't need to elaborate on that. What are the things that have come out of this last period that perhaps we hadn't always applied that, that learning to farming in the future, but we should be considering in the future? What are the things that you're seeing at Meridian in, in your advisory work with farmers that they need to start building into their um, business models now, uh, which probably weren't thought of few years ago? Well, I suppose the obvious one is the think the unthinkable because the unthinkable can happen. So, um, and we're caught a bit at the moment, uh, Rob, because uh, the capacity, the earning capacity of land is out of all whack to the cost of that land. But if the business doesn't grow, uh, you know, if a business yes. doesn't double in output, well, it's really got to double in, in um, discretionary disposable income. That's the real test. And, you know, having twice as much land doesn't matter. Having twice as much top line doesn't matter. It's the discretionary disposable income that you've got to, that, that, that allows you to actually get wealth creation. So people need to, uh, need, do need to expand a business, but need to be cautious about that. We've had periods when um, land values fall. Um, but, you know, some, some of the things, uh, what are you going to do if you can't get shearers? Um, now, who would, who would have thought that we couldn't bring New Zealand shearers over? Uh, what, are you, uh, what are you going to do if you can't get other forms of labour? I mean, to some extent, uh, agriculture has been very lucky. If you go back through, through history, uh, Barry Jones in, in Sleepers Awake back in the 60s, identified how we'd moved as a society from uh, working, all the jobs were in agriculture, and then they moved to manufacturing, and now the smart money was there in the service industries and in education. Well, the smart things of the service industries and education don't look too good when you've got a pandemic, and we can probably, well, recent history tells us we will have more pandemics. So agriculture, to a very large extent, has been shielded from that. Um, what, we're, what we're not shielded from is the, uh, because of interest rates where they are internationally, what, we, what family farming isn't shielded from is the uh, corporate takeover of agriculture. And I think the, the, the longer we see uh, very low interest rates, but land value in Australia going on increasing at, at 
sort of average of 6% a year nationally, um, it's, it's, farmers are going to have to be uh, really canny. Uh, they're going to have to do a lot more leasing at sensible rates. If you lease land at, at 5% of its capital value at the moment, you won't make any money out of it. So people are going to have to look for long-term leasing arrangements to go on building their business. Um, there are some uh, things in government policy that I think need to change to make uh, to put family farming on an even uh, footing with uh, the international investor. Um, but but look, generally, I, I think uh, for an Australian family farm, go on doing what you're doing. Make sure you do it really well. Look for opportunities to grow in little slices. Uh, Alan Lloyd, professor of economics at Melbourne University some years ago, said uh, farmers will never go broke buying the paddock next door, but they might grow bro go broke buying the farm next door. Um, so, yeah, just, just keep – do what you do really well and and increase land in little chunks. So, really good um, points to finish on, Mike. And uh, I, I just want to again congratulate Meridian and yourself on your focus on this area because we see it all the time that it's that we can have great family businesses, but it's a challenge, you know, that that comes in this area that sometimes brings them undone. And and I, I just want to finish off on, and I'm going to give you give you back your quote that's the top of your um, your thesis and and it, it's very important in this situation I think and the quote is the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago the second best time is now and I think that's something we could apply to succession planning yes Rob look a lot of people say it's too early to start succession the kids aren't old enough and whilst that might be true, it's not too early to start planning for it. So yes, it's too early to start a succession plan, but it's never too early to start planning for succession, to build the business so that there are choices, to build the business with both on-farm and off-farm investments, to have uh, investments which can be allocated to the non-farming children. Any of those things, take a long time, 30-year time frame, in order to double the size of a business um, with the ups and downs of agriculture. It's been terrific um, having you on Commodity Conversations podcast and, uh, and Mike Stevens is not far from us here in Ballarat, so we do see you from time to time for a cup of tea. Thanks again, Mike. Congratulations. Again, I think a lot of people will be uh, really hoping that uh, the PhD work that you've done can be implemented into the wider agriculture. So you've been listening to Commodity Conversations and I've been speaking to Mike Stevens from Meridian. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Robert. Thanks again, Mike and Rob, for coming on today. There's some startling stats in there on the research and it just goes to show how it's one of the most important parts of the business to get right. And thanks for listeners for tuning in again to Commodity Conversations. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and please remember to give us a rating on your podcast app and get onto the Mercado website for all the latest market reports from our analysts. Have a great week and we'll be back again soon.